This is William Fink, and this is Christogenia on Talk Show, sort of. Christogenia on Christogenia and Talk Show. I should stop repeating that. I have to come up with a better title for this program. Hopefully that'll be soon. I have a few things to address tonight. I have a few things to address tonight that I really don't want to address, but they have to be addressed. But when there's something rotten in a room and, and you don't shine the light on it, nobody knows where the smell is coming from. This has to be addressed. Should a Christian identity pastor be seen in costume and in revelry at a Halloween party? No. That is a shame, and it is a shame upon us all. Unless such a man being unrepentant, we separate ourselves from him. Should a Christian identity pastor be seen leading a lascivious lifestyle, cavorting with aliens and race mixers, these charges can be proven, and engaging in promiscuous behavior in public, and even on a rather regular basis? No, that is a shame, and it is a shame upon us all unless we separate ourselves from such a man. We have all sinned. We can all sin again. But we cannot attempt to cover our sins with excuses or lame justification. Neither can we justify our sins by our circumstances. There is no moral relativism in the word of our God. To engage in such behavior and to trumpet it publicly is sinful indeed. When such a thing occurs, it is not a time to vaunt ourselves. Rather, it is a time to mourn and to pray that the man who has done these things repents. And in his repentance, he must also denounce his sinful behavior. That's what confession is. And I'll get to that later in this program. Confession is agreement with God that his law and his word are good and that we've screwed up. It's agreement with God that the law is good. It's not, a, it's not an admittance of our sin, not to God. God knows our sin. He sees everything. He knows what we've done. We have to agree with him that it was wrong and repent. Such a man should also desist from using the title of pastor, as I know he's used for many years, and has worn it proudly. But he has been no role model to any Christian community with his behavior as of late. I can't speak for his past. At first, I was not going to name this man who has done these things. There is already a thread on the Christogenia Forum, which has been visited many times, and the man is aware of it. I didn't post it. Somebody else posted it. I'm not always the bad guy, even though I always get blamed for it one way or another. I agreed with it. What Once this, that this behavior is displayed out in the open, I, I have to agree that it's evil. And not only must I make my position public regarding such behavior, 
I have an obligation to warn the community of such a man. Since from the tenor of his program last night, when he saw, he, he was warned, of course, I, I gather, of the threat at Christagenia concerning his behavior. And he answered it in a program last night. And from the tenor of that program, he is clearly unrepentant. He's defending his behavior. It's obvious from that program that the person, the so-called Pastor Dan Johns, I, I wouldn't call him a pastor, even though, even if I may have in the past, he has indeed hardened himself concerning his behavior. While he calls his race-mixing friends good righteous people, there's no way a race-mixer can be a good righteous person. No way in the eyes of our God can a race-mixer be a good righteous person. You could be a repentant race-mixer, but these people are still race-mixers. And Dan is evidently proud of it. He calls them good, righteous people. And he has characterized questions concerning his conduct, conduct which he himself made public, he's characterized as attacks on him by his enemies. Imagine what Paul of Tarsus would have thought if the fornicator of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 had taught the same way. Oh, Paul's my enemy and he's attacking me. What would Jesus Christ have thought? having given Jezebel space to repent of her fornication, if Jezebel had resorted to such nonsense as to claim that such criticism was a political attack, they're attacking me. I know the truth, so they're attacking me. Well, he doesn't know the truth if he's cavorting with aliens and race mixers. He's no danger to the damn Jews, that's for sure. Such is the mark of a vain and arrogant man to think that he could claim the title of pastor and preach the word of Yahweh publicly and yet to be above reproach for his own sin. Proverbs 30.20 Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. In this case it is a man and his sin is written all over his Facebook. Pun intended. One of the excuses that Dan Johns is using for his cavorting with aliens and race mixers is that the area he lives in is only 18% white. With such reasoning, Esau would have a damned good excuse before Yahweh for his own race mixing, since the land of Canaan where Isaac and his sons lived was probably about 99% Canaanite. I am certain that Yahweh will not be entertained with such reasoning. And Esau found no mercy before him. The medieval Catholic Church is far behind us, thank God. We cannot excommunicate such a man or put him under the interdict as the medieval popes did, starving men to death. But he has publicized his wanton lifestyle. His, he's basically promoting race mixing by promoting race mixers. Last night, he defended his alien friends and said that he'd rather have them in a foxhole with him than certain white people he knew. 
Is that the Christian attitude? Is that the identity Christian attitude? Would Yahweh our God, who, who, who saved Israel, who died on behalf of all the sins of Israel, would he throw white people away and take some niggers into heaven because they're better people than the whites? Or do we seek out the lowly of our brethren and teach them to be better people, rejecting the aliens? Come out from among them and be separate. Identity Christians should know that above all things. We're supposed to separate ourselves from the world. Not use the world that we live in as an excuse for our bad associations and our wanton and lascivious behavior. This is not an attack. It is our duty to do this. We have an obligation and a responsibility to our brethren to do this. And to disassociate ourselves from such people and to make that disassociation clear. We are not trying to destroy this man. Rather, it should be fully evident to all, fully evident to all who could see these things, and they're posted at the Christagenia Forum, that he is already destroying himself. We are only sounding the alarm so that our brethren know to steer clear of the impending disaster. Because these things always crash. That's enough for that topic. That's my opinion concerning Dan Johns. The Prophecy of Amos, Part 6. And in this, we will be addressing another, uh, another heretic, a heretic named Eli James. He did a program on Republic Radio on February 24th, 2013. And in his program, his attitude, his attitude, and this is also posted on Christagenia.org, there's a ten and a half minute soundbite. Anybody who wants to criticize me and doesn't go listen to that soundbite is a damnable hypocrite. There's a ten and a half minute soundbite where Eli James where Eli James presented more universalist heresy than I've ever heard from a Catholic priest in ten minutes. No doubt. I've been asserting for two years now that Eli James is a universalist and Eli keeps proving me right and Eli's blind supporters have their heads so far up Eli's ass that they won't listen to ten minute to a ten minute soundbite. I've been through this before. I'm sure I'll go through it again. But it's my duty, it's my obligation to publish these things. The Prophecy of Amos, Part 6. In the first two chapters of Amos, we saw judgments pronounced upon the people of Israel and Judah, and also upon the surrounding nations as well. 
These other nations are the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Philistines, and the Syrians of Damascus. Why I'm not counting the Tyrians in with this group will become evident probably next week when we do the later part of Amos chapter 3. Some of these people of the surrounding nations were from the accursed tribes of Canaan or from of the inbred descendants of Lot. Others were Adamic peoples closely related to the Israelites. For instance, the Syrians. The, the, the original inhabitants of Damascus are of the tribe of Aram, and they also are descended from Shem. Many of the people in these nations were most likely Israelites themselves, who had been both residing in and even mixing with these nations ever since the period of the judges, and especially since the time of the division of the kingdom, when Israel was turned to paganism by their political leaders and fell away from the worship of Yahweh and his law. It is perfectly evident in 2 Samuel chapter 8 that the Syrians of Damascus, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Edomites, all these people mentioned in, in Amos, were all subjected to Israel in the days of King David. And that his kingdom did indeed stretch from the border of Egypt to the Euphrates. And that David's sons were delegated rulership over parts of this territory. Now these things are truly not noticeable in inscriptions and are often overlooked in the Bible because even in the Bible the original names of these lands were kept. Somebody might read 2 Samuel chapter 8. I've seen many people do it by the time they get to 2 Kings they forget what it said in 2 Samuel. The lands were mostly named after the original occupants and those names stuck. And later on, those who inhabited these lands were often called after these names, no matter what tribe they were from. That the children of Israel had indeed begun to mingle with these subject people is evident throughout the biblical narrative. That they went a-whoring after the heathen, as we read in Ezekiel 23.30. And that they begot strange children, as we read in Hosea 5.7. The transgressions mentioned in the opening chapters of Amos in reference to the non-Israelite nations were not transgressions of the law, for the heathen nations never had the law. From Psalm 147, verse 19 and 20, I quote, He shows his word unto Jacob, his statutes and judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any other, any other nation. As for his judgments, they have not known them. Rather, these transgressions were transgressions against God himself. The transgressions of the heathens for which they were being punished all had to do with how the heathens had treated the children of Israel. All of them. Without exception. Now, some may in their sophistry object and claim that the Moabites were punished because their king burned the bones of the king of Edom into line. 
However, it was established here, in part three of this series, I believe it was, that the king of Edom at this time must have been an Israelite and not an Edomite. For the event referenced is in the time of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The event being referenced is described at 2 Kings chapter 3. And at that time, and we could see that from 1 Kings chapter 22 verse 47, under the same king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, 2 Kings chapter 3, follows 1 Kings chapter 22 by a very short time. Under the same king of Judah, there was no king at that time in Edom. A deputy was king, meaning a non-Edomite appointee, which was almost certainly from among the children of Israel in the court of King Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. So that king of Edom that the Moabites burned in a line was most certainly an Israelite because Edom didn't have a king as 1 Kings 22.47 says explicitly. From the beginning of Amos chapter 3 we see the prophet turn his full attention to the children of Israel and prophesy many punishments against them throughout the remainder of his book. The purpose of this punishment is summarized by Yahweh through the prophet in the opening lines of the chapter. Which I will now read. Amos 3.1 Hear this word that Yahweh has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Where Yahweh God says through the prophet, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. It is very important to understand that phrase, all the families of the earth. For that phrase is very much misunderstood in Christianity. And sadly, even in Christian identity has this misunderstanding caused serious divisions. Because there are many, even among us, who have universalist leanings and who are quick to misinterpret this phrase in order to support their universalist agenda. As Eli James did just two weeks ago. In order to understand the phrase all the families of the earth, we shall review certain scriptures beginning with Genesis chapter 10. This chapter describes the descendants of Noah and his family. The only Adamic family said to have survived the great flood. Genesis 10.1 says, Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah. That word could easily be translated races. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And under them were born sons after the flood. The sons of Japheth are then listed. And the scripture says in Genesis chapter 10 verse 5, By these, meaning the Japhethites, 
were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, everyone after his tongue, after their families, in their nations. It should say the isles of the nations divided in their lands. Then the sons of Ham are listed. And the scripture says in Genesis chapter 10 verse 20, These are the sons of Ham, after their families, and after their tongues, in their countries, and in their nations. Finally, the sons of Shem are listed. And the scripture says in Genesis 10 verse 31, These are the sons of Shem, After their families, after their tongues, in their lands, after their nations. Then in conclusion, the scripture says in Genesis 10.32, These are the families of the sons of Noah, after their generations, in their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. Immediately following the listing of these Genesis 10 nations in Scripture, there is the familiar account of the Tower of Babel. Now, Babel was not confounded at the start. Originally, the place was just, as we see at the beginning of Genesis 11, a plain in the land of Shinar, where the construction of a tower was begun. The tower had come to be referred to as Babel, which basically means confusion in Hebrew. Because that is where Yahweh confounded the tongues of men, Adamic men, in order to encourage the Genesis 10 families to separate one from another and to spread out across the land. He didn't want them clumped up in one city for some reason. From Genesis 11, and I read from verse 1, and then I'll skip to verses 8 and 9. And the whole earth, meaning the whole land of Shinar, and the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. So Yahweh scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth. And they left off to build the city. That would have been better translated. And they left off from building the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel. Because Yahweh did there confound the language of all the earth. Meaning of all that land. And from thence did Yahweh scatter them abroad. Upon the face of all the earth. And that word earth. That same Hebrew word Eretz. Was translated as land in the King James Bible over a thousand times. Sometimes they translated it earth. Sometimes they translated it land. It never meant the planet. It didn't mean the planet in 1611. This is clearly how Yahweh had affected the statement seen at the end of Genesis chapter 10. At the end of Genesis chapter 10, it says, These are the families of Noah after their generations in their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. Genesis chapter 11 describes this division of the Adamic families into nations. 
the division which is mentioned at the end of Genesis chapter 10. Now I have an aside, because certain universalist clowns in Christian identity have criticized me for this. We see at the end of Genesis chapter 10 a statement, a past tense statement. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. Then in Genesis chapter 11, we see a story about a gathering of the children of Noah in the plain of Shinar and, and, and the confusion of tongues and the building of Babel and, and, and the scattering of them across the land. This is the exact same literary style used in Genesis chapter 2 in relation to the end of Genesis chapter 1 describing the creation of Adam. And that literary style, the best term for it is recapitulation. There were not two divisions of the nations and there were not two creations of Adam. This same event the separation of the Adamic families descended from Noah into nations is also recollected again at Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, where it says, When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. Paul, Paul of Tarsus again refers to this very thing in Acts chapter 17, verses 26 through 28, where he tells the Athenians, and the Athenians are Ionians, the Ionians are Japhethites. There's a clear, unmistakable, absolute literary connection between Javan in Genesis 10 and the Ionians of Athens. They are Japhethites. And Paul treats them as Japhethites in Acts chapter 17. He doesn't talk to them about redemption and sin and law and, and, and things that applied to Israel only. He talked to them in a broader scope as fellow Adamic people. The first promise of salvation is in Genesis 3.23. It applies to the entire Adamic race, as Christ also attests in Luke chapter 11, in part. Paul tells the Athenians in Acts 17, and I quote from verse 26, and is made of one blood all nations of man. Now, blood is added to later manuscripts, and it doesn't really belong there, but that's immaterial. And is made of one all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek Yahweh, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And who are the offspring of God? The children of Adam, who is the son of God. Luke 3.34 No one else. 
So here we see that the language used by Paul is also the language that was used in Genesis. Here we see in Acts 17, verse 26, that from one, from Adam, God made all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. And in Genesis chapter 11, we see from verse 8, so Yahweh scattered them abroad from there upon all the face of the earth. And they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because Yahweh there did confound the language of all the earth, all the land. And from thence did Yahweh scatter them abroad upon all the face of the earth, or the face of all the earth. We also see that these were the families of the sons of Noah. And we also see that these are the separation of the sons of Adam of Genesis 10.32 and Deuteronomy 32.8. Where it says all the families of the earth. These are all of the Genesis 10 Adamic families and none other. And history and archaeology prove that all of these people were originally white beyond doubt. And we see Paul profess that very thing, that all the families of the earth are all the Genesis 10 Adamic families. That's the profession Paul is making in Acts 17.26. All the earth is not the entire globe. Rather, it is all of the land where those families of Genesis chapter 10 were divided. As we see in Acts 17.26. This is the land which the Greeks called the Oikumene. The dwelling place of the white race. Originally. This is the land figuratively called the Garden of God. In Ezekiel chapters 28 and 31, the Assyrian, when Ezekiel began to write, was the tallest tree in the garden of God, meaning that he was the greatest nation among the Genesis 10 nation of families at that time. He wasn't always the greatest nation. At one time, the Kushite Empire of Babylon was the greatest nation the empire of Cush. Before that, or actually concurrent with that, Egypt was very often the greatest nation. And they struggled back and forth for centuries. After Assyria fell, Persia became the greatest nation. But when Ezekiel wrote, the Assyrian was the tallest tree in the Garden of God the most powerful nation in the Adamic land, the Adamic Oikumene. The Garden of God is Ezekiel's way of referring to the Greek Oikumene, or the, the land that the Greeks would call the Oikumene, the Greco-Roman world, the world of the white nations on the earth at that time. These things are fully evident from Genesis chapters 10 and 11 and from Deuteronomy 32.8. Since these sons of Adam 
these sons of Adam are called all the families of all the earth in these passages. Let me repeat that. Since these sons of Adam, only Adam, are called all the families of all the earth in these passages, nobody can possibly be inserted into this picture who is not a son of Adam. Period. Who does not have his heritage fully in the white nations of Genesis chapter 10. Only the white nations of Genesis chapter 10, and the scripture proves it, the scripture I just cited proves it, Genesis 10, Genesis 11, Deuteronomy 32, Acts 17, only these nations are all the families of all the earth. You cannot squeeze a squat monster into that definition. You can't take an Eskimo, a Kenyan, a Latino squat monster, a yellow monkey, and squeeze them into that definition. To do so is to spit in the face of God. It's to ignore the context of the entire Word of God. Now we shall read the promise to Abraham as it is first found in Genesis chapter 12. Now Yahweh said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will, I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. It has been said, it has been said very recently, and most appallingly, by certain so-called pastors claiming to be identity Christians, that the Abrahamic covenant provides that all other peoples, that's what he said, all other peoples, would be blessed for blessing the children of Israel, as this Abrahamic covenant is so often misinterpreted. That's the universalist interpretation and Eli James recently said this same thing talking to a Mexican in his February 24th Voice of Christian Israel program. Eli James asserted that. This is a backdoor to bringing the same satanic concept of universalism into Christian identity which the Roman church brought into Christianity 1600 years ago. And clowns like Eli James and Greg Howard are now promoting it. The phrase, all the families of the earth, as it appears in Genesis chapter 12, cannot be taken outside of the context of the phrases, 
all the face of the earth, the sons of Adam, the bounds of the people, all nations of men, which were made of one, which we see in Genesis chapters 10, 11, in Deuteronomy 32, 8, and in Acts chapter 17. The phrase, all the families of the earth, refers to all of the families descended from Adam. The phrase, all the families of the earth, refers to the Adamic oikumene, the living space, the dwelling space, which is what an oikumene is, of the white race, that land which the Adamic race inhabited at the very time of Abraham, after they were scattered upon the face of all the earth. As the Bible describes in Genesis chapter 11, only one chapter earlier than this promise to Abraham was given. The non-Adamic races have no part in any of this, and they have no promise of any blessing in the entire Bible. Not one. Note the use of the term families in Genesis. Chapters 10 and 12. And here in Amos 3, 2. In all cases, it is the same word. Mishpaka. Strong's Hebrew Dictionary number 4940. It is a family. It is a circle of relatives, as Strong defines it. We see that in Genesis chapter 10, the concept of nation sprung from the concept of a family. A nation is not a geographical happenstance. A nation is not an accident of historical occurrences. A nation is a group of related people, period. Genesis 10.5, by these, meaning the Jephethites, were the isles of the nations divided in their lands, everyone after his tongue, after their families, in their nations. Genesis 10.20 These are the sons of Ham, after their families, after their tongues, in their countries. Now, countries refers to land. And in their nations. Genesis 10.31 These are the sons of Shem. After their families, after their tongues, in their lands, after their nations. So families in the Bible are groups of related Adamic people and nations are what those families become after they multiply and branch out into many related people. Occupying diverse lands. The Abrahamic Covenant of Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, is cited by the apostles at Acts 3.25. Here it is from the King James Version. I've been using the King James tonight so far. I'll get to the Christogenian New Testament a little later. Acts 3.25. Ye are the children of the prophets, and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Families. Now in this case, the word kindreds is from the Greek word, patria. Strong's Greek Dictionary number 3965. 
Strong defines this word as a group of families or a whole race. And he has in parentheses the word nation. In the Bible, the patriarchy, plural for patria, are those who have descended from the patriarchs. The kindreds of Acts 3.25 could only be those listed in Genesis chapter 10. And that whole race could only be that same race of Deuteronomy 32.8, the Adamic race. The promise to Abraham cannot be forcibly interpreted to transcend these contextual biblical boundaries by anyone who would imagine being able to admit aliens simply because of the watered-down way in which the English equivalents of these Hebrew and Greek words are used today. In spite of, they squeeze aliens into this Abrahamic covenant in spite of the biblical context. If a patriarchate if a patriarch of one's patria is anything other than Adam, one has no place in Scripture, period. The only way you have a place in Scripture is if all of your patriarchs come from Adam. Of all these Genesis 10 Adamic families, here in Amos, Yahweh says to the children of Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. The children of Israel were not chosen out of the world among the other races. Rather, the children of Israel were chosen out of the world from among the other Genesis 10 families of the white Adamic race. The so-called non-Adamic races were never even in the picture. They were never even in the running. They were not candidates for election. They are still not in the running. Just as Peter tells us of non-Israelite interlopers stealing our communion. In the first epistle of Peter, Peter says that they are natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. You see a non-Israelite in your midst, you go read 1 Peter. That non-Israelite, that alien is a natural brute beast made to be taken and destroyed. Indeed, Christ shall destroy them at his coming. According to Liddell and Scott's Greek-English lexicon, the Greek word oikonomia is primarily the management of a household or family, which is the most literal meaning of the word. The word comes in part from the word oikos, which is the common Greek word which means a house. Therefore, in Matthew 15:24, Yahshua Christ reinforces this prophecy in Amos by saying, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the family. Of course, by Yahshua's time, and as Paul explains in Romans chapter 4, 
That house had grown quite large and had become many nations according to the promise to Abraham, inherited by Jacob through his father Isaac. From Luke chapter 13, I'll read from verse 23. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that can be saved? Yes, I'm reading the King James again, but that's okay. And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and has shut the door, and he begins to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know not from whence you are. Then you shall begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not from whence you are. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God, the dispersion of the children of Israel. It says in the book of Isaiah of the children of Israel that they shall do the same thing. Christ is only quoting the prophets. The place whereby this is most expressly explained in Scripture is found in Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 9. There he explains that not all in Israel are of Israel, and that the population is divided amongst the offspring of both Jacob and Esau. Paul then goes on to explain that the children of Jacob are the vessels of mercy, and the children of Esau are vessels of destruction, which is why these people Christ is talking to are going to be thrust out, because they're children of Esau and not children of Jacob. Now, of course, Paul did not have to explain anything about the other non-Adamic races, because in his time, these were not at all a factor in Palestine. Yahweh knows the children of Israel. According to Amos, Yahweh knows only the children of Israel of all the families of the earth. And therefore, he only came for them. In reference to his own ministry, Paul used the term oikonomia on several occasions. It has a direct connection to this idea that Israel is the only family in all the earth that Yahweh knew, and he would punish them for their iniquity. As the King James Version has dispensation in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 17 and 18, where the verb I'm sorry, where the noun oikonomia appears. And then the King James adds other words in italics to try to have it make sense. There are several other words Paul may have used to convey such a meaning if he only wanted to write dispensation. In the Christogenian New Testament, that passage reads, and I quote, For if I do this readily, I have a reward. But if, if voluntarily I had been entrusted with the management of a family, 
that's the word, oikonomia, the management of a family. What then is my reward? Announcing the gospel that I would set forth the gospel without expense with respect not to abuse my authority in the gospel. Among alternate and more general meanings of the word oikonomia, Liddell and Scott list husbandry and thrift. And among other possible definitions, Thayer's Greek-English lexicon adds stewardship. But none of those truly fit the context here in 1 Corinthians. Paul was entrusted with the management of a family. Paul uses this word oikonomia several times in the same context, referring to the family of the children of Israel to whom he was destined to take the gospel of Christ. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. For this cause I, Paul, captive of Yahshua Christ, on behalf of you of the nations, if indeed you have heard of the management of the family of the favor of Yahweh, which has been given to me in regard to you, if they were of those particular nations which descended from Abraham's seed, on behalf of you of the nations. Paul defines that in Romans chapter 4. Ephesians 3.9 And to enlighten all concerning the management of the household of the mystery, which was concealed from the ages by Yahweh. The management of the household of the mystery, a reference to the blindness of the children of Israel. Colossians 1, 24 and 25. Now I rejoice in these sufferings on your behalf, and I substitute for those deficiencies of the afflictions of the anointed with my flesh on behalf of the body itself, which is the assembly, of which I have become a servant in accordance with the administration of the household of Yahweh which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of Yahweh. The administration of the household of Yahweh, the family of Amos 3.2. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Just as I, traveling into Macedonia, had summoned you to remain in Ephesus, that you should command some not to teach errors, nor give heed to myths and endless genealogies, which afford disputes, rather than the management of the family of Yahweh, which is by faith. Faith is defined by Paul. The faith of Abraham is defined by Paul in Romans chapter 4. And it's the belief that Abraham's offspring would indeed become many nations. And in spite of the vain and fabulous genealogies of the Greek poets, that's what Paul is referring to. Paul's mission was to those very nations, as he explains. This word, oikonomia, in the sense that Paul used it in these passages, is the management of a family. 
This is but one place to see the clear connection between Old Testament passages, such as Amos 3.2, and the New Testament mission to spread the gospel, which, according to Christ himself, is but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yahweh states to Israel at Amos 3.2 that you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Paul clearly preached reconciliation from that punishment through Christ, an idea which is lost in the Universalist translations of his epistles. Isaiah chapter 43 gives us some insight. When compared with history of where the non-Adamic races fit into the Old Testament picture. If one pays attention, I'll read from Isaiah 43, 1. But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. Here's the important part for my point here tonight. I gave Egypt for thy ransom. Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore I will give men, the word Adam, for thee, and people for thy life. Yahweh says he will give away, he will give up Egypt, Ethiopia, Seba, Adamic men, Adamic people for Israel in that passage. Very clear. By the time of Isaiah, the ancient Hamitic kingdom of Ethiopia, the biblical Cush, and this was once a great kingdom, was overrun with Nubians. Therefore, by the time of Jeremiah, approximately 140 years later, that prophet could ask, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then ye may also do good that are accustomed to doing evil. Jeremiah 13, 23. Egypt, which was promised to become the basest of nations, Egypt would also be overrun with Nubians, as was Seba. Today, all of those nations are populated with Arab, with mixed people. And they are among the filthiest, most vile places on earth. They were once great white nations. If Yahweh gave these nations up for the sake of preserving the children of Israel, to whom did he give them? Did he give them to his friends and allies? Or did he give them to his enemies? The biblical story 
related in Revelation chapter 12, encapsulates the idea that Israel, portrayed as a woman, was cast off before Yahweh and fled into the wilderness. Once Israel fled, the serpent unleashed from its mouth a flood after the woman. In the wilderness, the woman would be saved in Christ. The flood represents the non-Adamic races. And an examination of history tells us that these non-Adamic races certainly did destroy all of the once Adamic nations of the old Oikumene, which Israel was cast away from. This is Christian Identity 101. And there are clowns that claim to be 30-year pastors that don't get it. Meanwhile, the woman, primarily the white Adamic remnant of the tribes of Israel, built a new Adamic oikumene in Western and Northern Europe before spreading out and colonizing other places on the globe, before coming to rule over, for right or wrong, those people who destroyed the old Adamic oikumene. Any pastor who makes excuses for the other races and who insists that they could somehow be included in the Genesis 12 promise to Abraham, that pastor only promotes the flood of the serpent and the pollution of the people of God. That is the essence of universalism and how it is destructive. Go ahead, squeeze aliens into that Abrahamic covenant. You can't escape the title universalist. You won't escape the wrath of God. Contrarily, the scripture tells us what shall become of the nations where Israel was scattered. For example, at Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11. And in Jeremiah chapter 46, verse 28, prophecies directly related to Amos 3.2. Jeremiah 30, verse 11. For I am with thee, saith Yahweh. To save thee, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee, yet I will not make a full end of thee. But I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. Jeremiah 46, verse 28. Fear thou not, O Jacob my servant, saith Yahweh, for I am with thee, for I will make a full end of all the nations where I have driven thee. But I will not make a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure. Yet I will not leave thee wholly unpunished. Nations in the Bible are groups of related peoples. They are not mere geographical regions or governments. If Yahweh told us these things, how can we coddle the non-Israelite races? Only a Jew would label those who teach these words of Yahweh our God with such slanders as exterminationists. Those who would tickle the ears of non-whites with false words are enemies to the truth.
Eli James. Fittingly, in Amos 3.3, Yahweh asks, Can two walk together except they be agreed? There is a Greek word, homologeo, which is literally to be of the same word, or to agree. Which in the King James Version of the New Testament is usually translated as confess. The children of Israel are commanded to be in agreement with their Creator, or they cannot walk with Him. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. The words of Christ. Therefore each who shall agree with me before men, I shall also agree with him before my Father who is in the heavens. But he who should deny me before men, I shall also deny him before my Father who is in the heavens. Romans chapter 10, verses 8 and 9. But rather, what does it say? Paul asking about the scripture. The word is near to you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is to say, the word of the faith that we proclaim. That if by your mouth, speaking to the children of Israel, you were to agree with Prince Joshua and trust in your heart that Yahweh has raised him from among the dead, you shall be delivered. The Septuagint version of Amos 3.3 has, according to Brenton, shall two walk together at all if they do not know one another. This may at first glance seem to mean something radically different, yet the result is much the same, because knowing one's God entails knowing his requirements, and because walking with him entails agreement with him. God's not going to agree with us. God's not going to agree with Dan Johns when Dan Johns says, oh, these race mixers I hang out with every night, well, well, they're good, righteous people. But I know some white people that are some real scum. God's not going to buy that. No, he's not. We have to agree with God. God doesn't agree with us. The Septuagint version of Amos 3.3 has, according to Brenton, Shall two walk together at all if they do not know one another? Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34, and I quote, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith Yahweh. I will put my law in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, No, Yahweh, for they all shall know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. No exceptions. Christ said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathers not with me scatters abroad. Well, since he came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and since Yahweh by his own words here in Amos knows only Israel, 
than any so-called Christian pastor with a ministry that is at all concerned with the alien non-Adamic races is scattering rather than gathering and acting in a manner which is absolutely contrary to the word of God. Why is it that Eli James has to base so much of his ministry on the defense of non-Adamic people, of non-Israelite people. Why is that? You think there's not an agenda behind that? He calls me evil from my position. My position is exactly the position of my God in Jeremiah 46:28 and in Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 11. Eli James calls me evil for that position. He calls Clifton Emmeheiser evil for that position. He shares it with me. Where evil? He who is not gathering with me scatters. You're trying to gather wolves to the sheep. You're scattering the sheep. Why would anyone in Christian Israel who claims to understand the exclusivity of the covenants and of salvation for Israel, build his, or attempt to build his ministry, defending the non-Adamic peoples, the aliens, who represent the flood of the serpent, which the serpent spewed out of his mouth in an attempt to destroy the woman. The serpent went on to make war with the woman and her seed. Unless he has an agenda. And he's not Christian Israel at all. He's not Israel identity at all. He has an agenda. Thus are the universalists, even those who claim to be identity Christians. They're not, they're not gathering with Christ. He came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He wasn't concerned about anybody else. Take not that which is holy and throw it to the dogs. Cast not thy pearls before swine. Feed my sheep. Three times he told Peter, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. To hell with the wolves, the dogs, and the swine. In his February 24th, 2013 Voice of Christian Israel broadcast, these 10 minutes are posted on the Christagenia forum and they will be posted with this podcast on the main Christagenia website. In that broadcast, in addition to lying about the scope of the Genesis 12 covenant to Abraham by extending it, as he said, to all other peoples, not to all the families of the earth of Genesis chapters 10 and 11, he insists that that covenant is to all other peoples, yet it belongs only to the Genesis 10 nations. In his February 24th program, Eli James told the Mexican caller, and I quote, you can be a Christian. He also told him, and this is absolutely her heretical, he told this Mexican that the white race and the other races, and I quote, were obviously designed to work together in his way, meaning in God's way, 
And we're supposed to get that out of the Scriptures. That's what he said. I have it on tape. So evidently, in Eli's mind, Christianity is simply just another religious philosophy that anyone can subscribe to. Rather than being the recognition of the racial covenants between God and Israel. That's what Christianity really is. Christianity isn't Buddhism. It isn't Islam. It isn't Judaism. It isn't Taoism. It isn't Shintoism. It isn't some shit-ass Eastern philosophy that anybody could subscribe to. Christianity is a recognition that Yahshua Christ is God come in the flesh to save his people Israel. That's what Christianity is. And to be a Christian is to be one of the anointed people. That's what Christianity is. And to recognize your, your Savior. That's what Christianity is. It's not just another philosophy that just anybody can subscribe to. That's crazy. And that's universalist. That is universalist. The Mexican, he can't be a Christian. Calling oneself something and being it are two different things. Eli said, we're obviously designed to work together in reference to the white race and the other races. In his way, and we're supposed to get that out of the scriptures. That's what Eli said, verbatim quote. The scripture says that we are to be a separate people. 1 Peter 2.9 We're not to work together with the other races. The scripture says that we are to come out from among them and touch not the unclean. 2 Corinthians 6.17 Where do the scriptures command that we work together with the other races? Eli's flunky and sidekick Greg Howard made no remarks in opposition to Eli's words. In fact, Eli in that same program went on to have Greg read from Matthew chapter 15 while Eli then in turn misinterpreted that scripture for the Mexican in the manner of a rabbi presenting a targum. Once again, Eli James proves to the world that he is indeed a universalist. He is not Christian identity. He might claim the label. When will Christian Israel separate themselves from these charlatans? One Peter two nine from the Christianian New Testament. Peter addressing the the, the, the tribes of Israel scattered throughout Asia Minor. But you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Holy meaning separated and devoted to God. That's what the word hagios means in Greek. A peculiar people. So that you should proclaim the virtues from which out of darkness you have been called into the wonder of his light. Who at one time, this being a reference to Hosea chapter 1, were not a people, were a people put off in punishment. But now are the people of Yahweh, those who have 
not been shown mercy, but are now shown mercy. We're to be separate. We're to be holy. We're to be peculiar. We're not to be working together with the other races. That's universalism. Anybody that can't see that is absolutely blind. Eli James is a universalist. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 from verse 14. Christa getting a New Testament. Do not become yoked together with untrustworthy aliens. We are not to work together with the other races. For what participation has lawlessness and justice? And what fellowship has light toward darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what share the faithful with the faithless? And what agreement has a temple of Yahweh with idols? For you are a temple of the living God, just as Yahweh has said, I will dwell among them, and I will walk about, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And there's no mention of anybody else, because Yahweh only knew the children of Israel. On which account? Come out from the midst of them and be separated. Not working together. Come out from the midst of them and be separated, says the prince. And do not be joined to the impure. And I will admit you. And I will be to you for a father. And you will be mine for sons and daughters, says the almighty prince. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, we must... Cleanse ourselves from every defilement of flesh and of spirit, accomplishing sanctity in awe of Yahweh. Sanctity, separation, holiness. Christian identity must be firm in its definition. I will say what it definitely is not. It is not cavorting with aliens and race mixers, and it is not coddling Mexicans. We are to fashion ourselves after our Redeemer. And he would say to the aliens, get away from me. I never knew you. Israel is the only family he has known in all the earth. Psalm 82 God speaking to his children. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Once again, in Psalm 82.2, Yahweh asks, How long will you judge the unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? The Mexicans are ungodly. 
All bastards are ungodly. Should a Christian identity pastor be accepting their persons? Eli James is a universalist, and Greg Howard is playing the clown. I want to explain a lapse of discernment in the paper Eli James wrote. There's a lot of lapses of discernment in this paper. There's a lot of incorrect statements in this paper. I want to explain one serious lapse of discernment in a paper that he wrote recently called Crumbs, which is alleged by him to be a refutation of what he calls exterminationism, in, in the words of the ADL, I think. In that paper, Eli takes it for granted that bastards can be in Israel. He claims that in Israel, the children are not punished for the sins of the fathers. While the scriptures do say that, and it is true, it has nothing to do with bastards. Bastards cannot be in Israel. Bastards are excluded by Yahweh. A bastard shall not enter the congregation of the Lord, not to the tenth generation, nay, even forever. Eli twists this scripture to use it to defend bastards, saying that it's not the bastard's fault that he's a bastard. It, it's the father's fault for race mixing or the mother's and, and, the, and the son or the daughter, the bastard is not going to be judged for the father's sin. Well, that's all nice, but the bastard cannot be in Israel. So that scripture does not apply to bastards because bastards can't enter the congregation and Israel is the congregation. This man is a pervert. He's a pervert of the word of God. A bastard cannot be in Israel in the eyes of God. Yahweh God has commanded that bastards be excluded from Israel. Therefore, this law about the sons and the fathers and who's going to be judged for sin, well, that law only applies to Israel, and a bastard can't be in Israel. The lack of discernment, the lack of spiritual discernment of the Word of God is incredible. This man has an agenda. He has a universalist agenda. And anybody that can't see that is blind and deserves to smell his bullshit. This had to be addressed tonight. It was the ideal time to address it. All the families of the earth, that only applies to those Genesis 10 and Genesis 11 Adamic white families. That promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that only applies to the children of Adam. You can't force the other races into there. It doesn't say all peoples, as Eli says. Eli's a liar. It doesn't say all other peoples, and I'm quoting Eli. It says all the families of the earth, the same people who were all the families of the earth in Genesis chapter 11, and in Genesis chapter 10, and in Deuteronomy 32.8, and in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, who all came from one, from Adam.
all the other races are outside of the scope of the book. Unless, of course, Yahweh's talking about giving up Adamic races, ostensibly to his enemies, Isaiah chapter 43. Next week I will return, and I will probably recapitulate some of this presentation tonight, at least the, the, the academic biblical parts, and leave out the preaching, possibly. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh! I will be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren. We'll be presenting an Adolf Hitler speech, something a little different. Good night. Call recording has been completed. There was a time, but old time was then young. The great Caledonia, the chief of her line. From some of your northern deities, who knows not the great Caledonia's divine. From Tweed to the Arcades was her domain. To hunt after pastor or do what she would Our heavenly relation there fixed her reign And pledged their godheads to wanted good A lambkin in peace, but a lion in war the pride of our kindred, the heroine grew. Our grandsire, old Odin, triumphant place war. Whoever shall provoke you, the encounter shall rule. With tillage of pasture, a time she was bought to feed her fair flocks by a green rustling corn. But she flee the woods where her favorite is all. A darling amusement, the hounds and the horns. Long quiet she reigned till thither words to ears. A flight of bold eagles from Madrid's strand reputed successive for many long years. They darkened it and they plundered the land. The pounces were murder and horror their cry. They ravaged and ruined the world beside. She took to her hills and her arrows let fly. The dating invaders, they fled or they died. The camel on savage disturbed her repose With tumult and disquiet, rebellion and strife Provoked beyond bearing, at last she arose And robbed him at once of his hopes and his life The Anglian lion, the terror of France Of prowling and sanguine, the tweets of a flood But taught by the bright Caledonian lands He learned to feed in his own native world
The fell happy raven took wing from the north The scourge of the sea and the dread of the shore The wild Scandinavian bore a shoot forth To wanton incarnage and wallow in gore O'er countries and kingdoms the fury prevailed No arms could appease them, no arms could repel But brave Caledonia in vain they assailed As large welcome witness and lunk of Thus bold, independent, unconquered and free, Her bright course of glory forever shall run. For brave Caledonia, immortal must be, I'll prove it from you clear as clear as the sun. Rectangle, triangle, the figure we'll choose, the upright is chance and all time is the base But brave Caledonia's the hypotenuse Then ergo she'll match them and match them all ways